Wow, it is just so good to be together as the church. I've missed you. I haven't seen you in six days. We haven't been together in six days. I missed you. Hope you feel the same way. Uh, many of you are new. I've met so many people that are new to our church since we reopened on July the 5th, and I hope you're assimilating back in. Um, I want you to know if you're part of Gospel City, um, we kind of operate on a rhythm um, leading up to the kick off of our ministry year, which is always the weekend after Labor Day. So we're two weeks away from the kickoff of a brand new ministry year, which means we're in the last two weeks of this ministry year. We always have a theme for the year, so this is the last two weeks of our theme. Anybody remember the theme? Somebody please tell me you remember the theme. What's the theme of the ministry year? Take a step. Yes, I know you're circling, you're circling. Take a step. And I hope you have taken a step or two or 7,000 since we began the ministry year. And uh, I don't know about you, I'm looking forward to a new year altogether. If we could just kind of get past the, the season that we're in. Well, I, I sense a turning and a season that's turning and I'm especially excited about college football kicking off and, and um, we're going to get our children's ministry open back up and it is time for the un hindered ministry of the church and that is about to happen as we kick off this new ministry year and we're kicking it off as you've heard in prayer. Now if you were listening and paying attention you you may have gotten a little shocked to your soul there because you heard four days. I am asking you as the church to come together for four straight days. It'll be Sunday morning, September the 13th. That's two weeks from today. Come back Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, two hours each night. And you say, that is a big ask. You are right. I've never asked you for anything like this in the 11 year history of our church. And uh, I know it sounds like a big ask to you. Remember, I did this for 15 years in church every night, two and a half hours, and I survived. I'm asking you for four days to come together. Why? What's the overlying motivation to come together in prayer? I could give you about a hundred reasons why we need to do that, but the number one reason is this. Jesus Christ is worthy to be sought. That is enough reason for us to come together. And we're gonna pray for our individual hunger for God and, and kick off the new ministry year in, in the presence of God in prayer. We're gonna pray for our families. We're gonna pray for this church. We're gonna pray for our nation. Anybody believe our nation needs some prayer? Yes, especially in the season that we're going into. So we're going to come together. Some of you are going to have to rearrange your schedules. Some of you kids are going to figure out a different way to do homework. Some of you are going to say, I can't do homework because I'm coming to church. It'll be your motivation to come to church and be here for that. But um, we need to seek the presence of God. I need to refocus my life on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The date was... December the 2nd, 2018. It was the first time that I asked you as a church to open your Bible to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. And here we are now, 
60 sermons later, 24 chapters later, 1,151 verses later, 19,400 words of God that we have laid our eyes on and wrapped our hearts around. So I'm inviting you now to open your Bible to Luke chapter 24. And I trust, again, that God has taken you uh, on a discipleship journey and you've taken some steps. All of those verses are there to answer one simple question, who is Jesus Christ and what should my appropriate response be to him? Now, as a church, our regular practice is just to open to a book of the Bible and march verse by verse through that. We deal with topics sometimes, we have some topical series, but this is the steady diet. Let me tell you the reason why we do that, unlike some other churches. One of the reasons is simply Um, I have a tendency to want to avoid the hard verses in the Bible. And so if I just commit, we're going through every verse and every word, we have to deal with what God said. This is our way of elevating the word of God above my opinions and my thoughts and my experiences. You see, I would rather just look at the verses that I want to hear but sometimes God needs to say some stuff that I don't want to hear. And you can't avoid that if you're marching verse by verse through these verses. So let's read together the last four verses of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, beginning in verse 50. And he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. Bethany was just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, just a short distance from Jerusalem. He led them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Underline those three words, he blessed them. Verse 51, and he, as he blessed them, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him. Underline those three words, they worshiped him him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, if you were paying attention, you should have had something in your mind say, he did what? Because Luke, in a very understated way, just told you that Jesus began to levitate. And Jesus began to rise like a space rocket and went into heaven. Now, Luke is very concise. He's writing this orderly account. He wants us to know what happens, but he just doesn't give us a whole lot of details. These verses don't satisfy my curiosity. In an age of special effects and and movies and 3D, you would expect to know like what Tell me more about what that looked like. What did the disciples experience there? What, what happened? And again, the Bible's very understated. It doesn't always satisfy our curiosity. Um, I have to tell you, when, whenever I read about this particular event, by the way, this is what theologians call the ascension of Jesus Christ. Everybody turn to your neighbor and it's like, this is about the ascension. Turn to your neighbor right now. This is about the ascension of Jesus Christ. Very important doctrine. We, we would just kind of want to skirt past this, but it's very important that we understand the meaning and the implications of the ascension 
of Jesus Christ. But I have to tell you personally, every time I read this account, there is some scarring from some damage that took place when I was 19 years old. Let me just tell you about this. I was, uh, I was a freshman in college. I was a part of Cameron Baptist Church in Lawton, Oklahoma, incredible church, preached the word, disciple people, evangelized the lost, and our church was fired up about Jesus. We had a choir on Sunday morning, we wore choir robes, and one of the highlights of the year for our church is every year our choir presented an Easter cantata. How many of you have ever been a part of an Easter cantata? How many of you have ever sung in a choir? Raise your hand if you've worn a choir robe and not embarrassed to tell about it. Okay, good, good. So you've been a part of these Easter cantatas, right? Big orchestra event and, you know, eight-part harmony and the sopranos get to scream at the end, you know. Uh, that kind of thing was what was going on. Now, every year, we would ramp up the production value of the Easter cantata. Um, you know, the first year, we just kind of stood there and had our songbooks and we sang and it was glorious. And the next year, we decided, hey, let's kind of, uh, let's, let's take it up a notch. And we all decided to dress up like in, in ancient biblical outfits and we sang. And then the next year, we decided, you know, we, we, we need to reenact the Gospels, and so we reenacted the, the Last Supper, and then we reenacted the, the crucifixion. We got a big cross. We nailed somebody to the cross, Jesus, and then we, we reenacted the, the resurrection, rolled the stone away, big bright light. Jesus comes out of the grave, and one year, my seventh grade Sunday school teacher, Mike Moon, decided that we needed to take it to the ultimate level of production. Mike went to his pickup truck, he took off the winch from the front bumper. Remember, this is Oklahoma. We all had winches on our front bumpers. He took the winch off of the front bumper. He climbed to the top of the church and he welded the winch to the girders. He dropped a cable. We put Jesus, Darren, my 10th grade Sunday school teacher, in a harness and we attached said cable to the harness of Darren so that we could reenact the ascension of Jesus Christ at the climactic moment of the choir singing in the Christmas cantata. Now, we didn't want anybody to think that we were dumb enough to put a winch in the top of the church and drop a cable and put a harness on this guy, so we filled the auditorium with with cloudy type stuff that, you know, you might kind of see that stuff around here. It's like, we didn't have that cool stuff back there. We got dry ice. And if you pour water on dry ice, it creates clouds. And, and so that hid the cable and everything because we, we wanted people to like think this was miraculously happening. We wanted it to be enveloped in the moment, right? So at the climactic moment, the choir is singing the final number and um, the, the cable gets attached and up goes Jesus. And he gets all the way to the top. The choir's still singing, smoke is billowing, and at the very top, Mike forgot to turn off the winch. So the cable got bound in the pulleys in the winch at the top of the church, and the cable broke. So not only did we get to experience the glorious ascension of Jesus Christ, we got to experience his soon and expectant return. Back to earth, he comes crashing down on the tomb. The stone rolls away again, even further. Smoke billows, the lights are blaring. The choir never stopped singing. We finished the number, the lights go out. We went and checked on Darren. 
He survived the 35-foot fall, but he always walked with a limp after that. So I'm a little scarred as I read these verses. I don't know what kind of reaction you had, but this is the memory. Now here's the point of the story. It is dangerous to read into the story what your imagination imagines went on there. We're just left with the glorious truth that Jesus ascended, he was carried up. It's interesting that the language doesn't say that somehow he propelled himself into heaven. It says he was taken up just in the, in the way that Jesus was sent, he didn't just come, he was sent by his father, he was taken back up by his father. And so Luke wants us to know this, and in saying these things, he, he includes these, these two phrases that basically summarize the entire book of Luke. It says that he blessed them and they worshiped him. And in those six words, Luke summarizes everything that he has written for 24 chapters under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about the thought that he, Jesus, blessed them. Who were they? They were sinners who had doubted. They were sinners that had forsaken Jesus. And notice that Jesus came to bless. He didn't come to condemn, but in compassion, in grace, and love, in mercy, he blessed them. And those disciples are like all disciples who are blessed by the gracious ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know how blessed you are as a disciple of Jesus? Look at the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter one. He says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Does it remind you of the ascension here? Paul's meditating on the blessing of Christ that we have um, as disciples. Hey, it doesn't matter who curses you as long as Jesus blesses you. And it doesn't matter who blesses you if Jesus condemns you. Are you blessed? Do you recognize the goodness and the grace and the blessing that is available to us in Jesus? So Jesus blesses sinners. That's one theme in the book of Luke. Here's the second theme. Sinners worship Jesus. These disciples, just a few moments ago, a few days ago, were sad. They were fearful. They were disappointed. But now their reaction to who Jesus is is described as worship. Now, up until this point, the disciples had followed him. They had listened to him. They had questioned him. They had forsaken him. They had doubted him. But now they worship him. Now, Luke is strategic with every word. This is the first time in the entire book that the word worship is used by Luke. Something had changed. They'd gone from respecting to him, they've, they've gone from following him, now Luke wants us to know they worshiped him. What had changed? Had their situation improved? Rome was still in charge 
of the area. They were still under Roman rule. Just a few miles away, the religious leaders hated them and were looking for them and wanted to kill them. And yet they boldly worshiped him. What had changed? The answer is found back up in verse 45. Micah preached that last week. Do you see verse 45? It says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Do you see the word understand there? It's an interesting Greek word. It literally means to put a puzzle together. What had happened in their minds? They had seen the individual puzzle pieces, all the different things that Jesus had done and Jesus had taught them, but it didn't connect until the moment that the Holy Spirit Help them understand. And when you understand who Jesus is, your heart responds in worship. If you ever put a puzzle together, you dump the puzzles out on the table and what's the first thing you do? Some of you would say you find the corner pieces. No, 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 no. The first thing you do is you put the box top up on front of the table so you can see the picture you're trying to put together. Do you know what the Bible is for many of you? For many of you, the Bible is a a bunch of disconnected pieces of the puzzle. And yet, you've never had the Holy Spirit open your eyes to see the box top that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm praying that he does that for you today. That's one of the reasons we go verse by verse through every um, verse is because we don't want to leave out any of the puzzle pieces. And at the end, you can see it all assembled in who Jesus is. And when you see it, you know what you do? Your heart responds in worship. What is worship? I mean, think about it. What happened? It says they worshiped him. Does that mean somebody pulled out a guitar? Does that mean somebody put some lyrics on the screen? And then they wrapped it up and they went home. Is that what happened? No. Worship is the only appropriate response of creation to its creator. Worship is the willing response of the human heart to a holy God. They understood this was not just a good teacher. This was holy God in front of them. Worship is treasuring the infinite worth of who Jesus is over all other competing influences. Worship is loving Jesus from my heart more than I love anything else. Worship is the daily surrender, not just on Sunday, it's the daily surrender of my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And what happened to them should happen to me every day. He blesses them they worship him. That is the cycle that every true disciple is on. So this passage opens with Jesus blessing his disciples. It ends with his disciples blessing God. And Jesus is the mediator that makes both possible. So what are the implications of what happened here? You you may just kind of want to rush past it because Luke doesn't make a big deal about it. But what I discovered this week is the rest of the New Testament makes a huge deal out of the ascension of Jesus Christ. I wanna give you real quickly five implications of the ascension of Jesus because the ascension of Jesus is like a hinge that connects a door to the frame and it is the conclusion of one era 
of redemptive history. It's the introduction of a new era of redemption history that we are now all living in. Here's the first implication of the ascension. First of all, Christ's earthly work is finished. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gives us a resume of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. He was manifested in the flesh. God became man. Jesus was 100% God with a human body wrapped around him. He was manifested in the flesh. John says we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father. He was manifested in the flesh. Secondly, he was vindicated by the Spirit. So we see the Trinity now. He's seen by angels. He's proclaimed among the nations. That's what good churches and disciples do. And he's believed on in the world. And he says he was taken up in glory. That is the earthly resume of Jesus. The reason Jesus hasn't stuck around It's because there's nothing left for Jesus to do to accomplish salvation for all who will believe. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us what he did when he got to heaven. It says this, after making purification for sins, he sat down. It's a great visual that the work has been accomplished. What do you do when your work's done? You sit down? You rest? You enjoy the work? That's what Jesus did. He sat down where? At the right hand of the majesty on high. The fact that he sat down is the scripture's way of telling us God exalted him to the highest possible place at the right hand of Father God, the highest possible exalted position. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, and every priest stands daily at his service. Now, a good Old Testament Jew would understand the the work of the priest. There was furniture in the temple. The Old Testament tells us all the particulars about what kind of furniture was supposed to be in the temple. But what's missing in the temple are any chairs. There are no seats because the priest's work was never Done. That's what it describes here in the passage. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so Jesus is finished with all earthly work. That means everything necessary to accomplish my salvation has already been done by Christ and accepted by God the Father. You know what that means? There's nothing left for Christ to do. Christ didn't need to stick around to teach me anything else I needed to know. Christ didn't need to reveal anything more about God. Christ didn't need to obey one more command on my behalf. Christ didn't need to resist one more temptation in order to save me. Christ didn't need to sacrifice anything else on the cross. Jesus' final words were, it is finished. There's nothing left for him to do. And there's nothing left for me to do to contribute to what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. So I I can stop. I can sit down. 
and stop trying to contribute something to my salvation. There's nothing left for me to do. I can't contribute a single good work. I simply must believe that Christ, what Christ accomplished was enough. So stop wishing for more information. Do you sometimes wish there would be more detail? You got some unanswered questions. You go to the Bible, you look for it. I can't find the answer. I wish Jesus had stuck around for another you know, decade and taught some classes on discipleship and stuff. No, he didn't need to do that. Everything that needed to be done has already been done. Have you ever wondered why Jesus doesn't show up and do more around here? I wonder why he doesn't do something about all the cruddy stuff happening in the world. That's, that's not right thinking. Here's a better Question, why doesn't the world respond better to all of the saving work that Jesus did when he was here? That's the right question. Jesus has accomplished everything that needs to be done to save completely all who will respond to him in worship. Here's the second implication. Christ's heavenly reign is established. Sometimes we wonder, well, why did he leave? What is he doing? What's he doing like right now? Let me tell you what he's doing right now. He is reigning as king on a throne with his feet kicked up on a footstool. Every power, every ruler in the universe. You say, footstool, what's, what's about, did you know the Bible talks about the footstool of the throne? The footstool is his enemies. That's what Psalm 110 says. And so if you're an enemy of God, you're his footstool. He's not bothered in the least. You're just causing him to rest his feet right there. He's, he's not lost an ounce of his power. He's not worn out. He's not threatened by any ruler, king, president, political party, nothing like that. Let me show it to you in Ephesians chapter one. It says this, God worked in Christ when he had raised him from the dead seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. It's amazing to watch people in positions of power jockey for seats of power on earth. Isn't it good to know that no matter who wins the presidential election, Jesus is still reigning as king unrivaled. Isn't that good to know? And by the way, do not, do not, church, church, listen to your pastor for a minute. Do not let the 2020 presidential election distract you from the fact that Jesus is our king. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? You didn't elect him. You can't impeach him. He has no term limits, and he is not going to resign. Jesus is king. And by the way, the church is not a political party. The church is not a voting block. The church does not align itself with any human political party. When it does, it becomes a pawn that 
the political party uses. That is not who we are. The church is not a political party. Listen, the church is a completely different nation. A holy nation. A holy nation living as an exile nation among the nations of the world. The local church, this local church, is an embassy of our holy nation. We are citizens of another kingdom, and we have a king that transcends our citizenship in this particular governing rule. We have a different king, we have a different governor, his name is Jesus, we have a different government. Our constitution is the Bible. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a citizen of a holy kingdom. And so, as disciples living in 2020 in America, we're also citizens of America, which means we ought to be the best citizens of America. So. Unfortunately, what's happened in our political system is the presidential election becomes a popularity contest and a personality contest. Here's what you want to do. If you want to be a good citizen, this is what you do. Read the two political platforms behind the candidates and whichever one aligns most closely to the kingdom of God, the, the citizenship we have in heaven. That's who you cast your vote for. That, that's how you navigate all this. Because fortunately, fortunately, the president changes every four to eight years. And we don't, we just, we get to replace one center with another center and then we move on. Because our king is Jesus and we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. So that's not even the greatest part. Ephesians chapter two, look at this. this gonna, all right, your head's gonna explode here. If you, if you do your job right, watch this. He... God raised up, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you understand the implication of that? Because of the ascension of Jesus Christ, who is right now seated at the right hand of God, you and I are also with him positionally seated at the right hand of God. Jesus still has his human body, although glorified. He is a human being who has made his way into the heavenly places. And the hope of every human being is that one day we will have our own ascension to be seated with him in heavenly places. That is the hope of every follower, every citizen of this kingdom. John chapter 14, Jesus told us, I am going to prepare a place for you. For 2,000 years, you know what Jesus has been doing? You know what he's doing right now? He's preparing a place for you. My question to you is, are you a citizen? Is Jesus your king? If he's your king and you're a citizen of this kingdom, you have a place in heaven waiting for you with Jesus. Here's the third implication of the ascension. Christ's priestly work continues. Christ's priestly work continues. Hebrews expands on this extensively. 
beginning in chapter four. It says this, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Do you see the ascension there? He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Jesus has become our great high priest. You don't need an earthly priest. You have a heavenly priest, a great high priest, a true and better priest. What, what's the job of a priest? Real simple. A priest grabs hold of heaven with one hand and he grabs hold of earth with the other hand and pulls them together. He grabs hold of holy God and sinful man and acts as a mediator between the two because God is too holy to be in the presence of sin and man is too sinful to be in the presence of holiness. We need a mediator. That's called a priest and no man on earth can do that. And so Jesus, the true and better priest, has become our great high priest in heaven so we can have as sinners access to the holiness of God and God, God's holiness can have access to us. And it says this should be what motivates us to stand firm, to hold fast. The days that you're exhausted and worn out and the days that you feel like giving up and the days it's hard to get to church and fulfill your responsibilities as a disciple, the days it's hard to love your family, the days it's hard to pray, the days it's hard to worship, hold fast to our confession knowing that Jesus, our high priest, who has passed through the heavens is right there to help us. As a matter of fact, he tells us how to help us. You know what Jesus is doing for you right now? Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is interceding for you. Look at this in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. How many of you appreciate if somebody be praying for you? Just like, I wish somebody would be praying. I need prayer. I'm a mess. I, I just, if I could just have a prayer group and, and, you know, we give you an opportunity every week to give us your prayer request and we do pray for you. Our staff and elders and elders wise, man, we, we're all over that. We love to pray for you. Our hearts ache. We enter into that pain a lot of you are struggling with. But listen, can I tell you, we, we do that very imperfectly and your friends do that very imperfectly. I pray for my children. They're a mess. And I, 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 as a parent, I do that very imperfectly. But do you know who perfectly prays for people like you that are a mess? Jesus. Every day, all day, he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Another thing he's doing, he's actually listening to you pray. Look at this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know what our sinful hearts would have a tendency to do? Our sinful hearts would be like, well, yeah, Jesus, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's nice and comfy up there in heaven and all. I'm sure that that little throne you have and those, that little footstool you have, it's it's probably really easy to be God up there. You ought to try, you ought to try it down here. He says, oh, really? Yeah, I've been down there. 
I know how hard it is to live. I know the pain that this world brings. I know, I know about friends that, that reject you and forsake you. I know what it's like to, to have someone betray you. I, I know what it, it's like to bleed. I, I know what it's like to agonize. I know what it's like to feel pain and be separated from your father. So if any of those things are true of you, do you know what this verse is telling us? Jesus knows what it's like to be human. He is still human and still 100% God. And our hope is that we have a human in heaven who is God who sympathizes with what it's like trying to live in 2020. So do you know what he says based on that? We can come to his throne. The verse continues. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Who's seated on the throne of grace? Jesus. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Let me give you a modern translation of that. That we might find grace to help in 2020. That's what that verse means. No matter what you're going through, you have access to the throne that Jesus is seated on. It's a throne of grace where he pours out help for people like you who need help. Not only that, you know what Jesus is doing right now? Jesus is securing the salvation of all who will draw near to him in salvation. Look at Hebrews chapter seven. He is able to save to the uttermost. I love that. It's like, not save you a little bit, sorta, kinda. He saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Don't miss the words. He always lives. He didn't just disappear into some unapproachable realm. Jesus is accessible to all those who will draw near to him. Here's the fourth implication of the ascension. The church's missionary work has begun. Notice back in Luke chapter 24, it tells us that after Jesus had ascended, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, some of you, even in the last uh, few weeks, have had the very unfortunate experience of taking one of your beloved children, driving them halfway across the country, and dumping them at an institution of higher learning. How many of you have ever felt the pain of doing that? Raise your hand if there's a hole in your heart and right now you're wondering what they're up to and you wish they would come home before somebody damages them. And I've had this experience, right? So the proper human response to losing someone you love is what? Sadness and grief. I was talking to Steve Gundy this morning. He just had that experience dropping one of his kids at college. And I said, did you cry? He said, I came home, buried my face in a pillow and cried for hours. That's, that's, that's the appropriate response. But look at what the disciples do. They didn't go home and bury their heads in a pillow. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Not sad, joyful. That's a supernatural response. 
they understood Jesus was still alive. And they understood that they had work to do. You understand? After worshiping them, they didn't stay on the mountain singing praise choruses around a campfire. They joyfully obeyed going back to the hardest place of ministry. What was in Jerusalem? A bunch of people that wanted to kill them and a bunch of people that needed to hear the message of the gospel. They understood, fellas, our work isn't done. Our work has just begun. We are now the body of Jesus. The church is the only visible representation of Jesus Christ on earth. The Bible describes us as his hands, his feet, his mouth. And now we are to be on the same mission that Jesus was on during the 33 years that he was here. Now for 2,000 years, the work continues. 2020's changed a lot of stuff. It's changed your schedule, it's changed your friends. You can't go do the fun things you used to do. There's one thing that hasn't changed. The mission of the church hasn't changed. It is still to get the gospel to the hard place. We, the church, are the ones to carry out the ministry of Jesus. Look at this in Ephesians chapter 4. Again, speaking of the ascension. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts. Jesus left gifts for the church, for the disciples to carry out the mission and the work. He's like, gifts? I get gifts? Where are the gifts? I want to un unwrap presents. What, what did I get? Did I get a new car? What did I get? Here, here are the gifts. You, you want to know what the gifts are? He tells us. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds, and the teachers. Do you know what the gifts are? They're your pastors. I'm your gift. <laughs> did you know that? I'm a gift. I'm a gift. And, and, and your, your, your small group leaders are gifts and, and, and Pastor Mike is a gift and all your pastoral staff and anybody that's trying to point you to Jesus or lead you to Jesus, they're gifts. And Jesus left the church as gifts to the world so that they can receive the eternal gift of salvation through Christ. What are these gifts supposed to do? What's the church all about? It's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And what is that work of the ministry? Building up the body of Christ. You see that the body of Christ is still here. It just looks different. It looks like you. You want to know what Jesus looked like? Turn your head. There, there we are. Some of you are hands and some of you are feet. Some of you are thyroids and pancreases, but we're all a part of the body. Just different members, right? Some of you are warts and just, you know, just different things that are on the body that we're all needed. Not all pretty, but we're all important and we're all essential to carrying out the ministry. Notice what else it says. Until we all attain the unity of the faith. You see, your pastor is your gift. Would you like to give a gift back to the pastor? How many of you like to give a back? Please raise your hand. You want to give a gift back to the pastor? What's the gift? What is the greatest gift you could give back to the pastor? The church could give the gift to the pastor. You know what it is? It's right there. The unity of the faith. Y'all quit fussing with one another 
and focus on what is essential, the ministry of the gospel so that we can all attain the unity of the faith. And then we understand that we're gonna have differences. We're just this big, multi-ethnic, diverse people that, that are outsiders. Luke is the only Gentile writer of scripture. He was an outsider. He didn't know the Old Testament. He had to be taught that. All that was new to him. He was an outsider. And yet in the kingdom of God, we welcome outsiders to become citizens of this kingdom. We supernaturalize immigrants into the kingdom. That's what we do. And Luke had been included in the kingdom. And so he wanted to know everybody's welcome in the kingdom. That's why he spends so much time talking to religious outsiders, Gentiles and Samaritans. He spends so much time talking about social outsiders, women who at that time were considered second-class citizens. He elevates them in the scripture. He talks about economic outsiders. He talks about the widow who gave more than all the rest. And at the same time, he talked about um, those that are outsiders because of their wealth. And, and he talked about the rich young ruler. He talked about young people, the children that Jesus loved. And then he also included a story about a, a guy so old, he's about to take his, his last breath, Simeon, who blessed Jesus and then just went off to die somewhere. He was so old. So if you feel like an outsider, if you feel like you don't belong, if church is a new thing for you, come on in and be a part of the story that is the gospel. We are the church who are sent to proclaim the gospel that is enough to save even people who are far from God. Here's the last implication. The Holy Spirit's empowering work is available. If this work of ministry sounds exhausting to you, it is in the flesh. But do you remember what Jesus promised? He said this in John 16, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go away, I will send him to you. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So. Everything we need to joyfully obey has been given us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has not abandoned his church. He has given us an advantage of the indwelling spirit to help us accomplish everything he's commanded us to do. Does that encourage you? You're not left alone. There's one more significant truth about the ascension, and it's this. One day, Christ is going to return to the very same spot from which he attended, he ascended. The reason we know that is Zechariah chapter 14 tells us that. It says he will descend on the Mount of Olives. It says when he does that, as a demonstration of his power, there'll be a great earthquake when the kingdoms of our Lord 
become, when the kingdoms of earth become the kingdoms of our Lord, King Jesus is coming back. That's what he said in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. There was an angel that appeared immediately after Jesus ascended. And this is what he said to those disciples. Why do you stand here looking into heaven? Now, Captain Obvious here, but I probably would have spoken up. Um, we just saw a man levitate into heaven like a rocket ship. That's why we're standing here looking into heaven. But apparently, the angel doesn't want them to stay there very long because he says, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. For every citizen of the kingdom of God, it is the blessed hope that soon and very soon, Jesus will return in the same way in which he left. Is anybody excited about that? Anybody want to get excited? Like, could that have just happened like in the next five seconds? I mean, anytime, Lord, is fine with me. We don't have to ever see 2021. We could just end this whole thing right now. Anybody in favor of that? Yeah, so like five seconds, would that be, is that soon enough for you? Five, four, three, two, one. Oh, I guess our work isn't done. So, so there's still more for us to do. I met a, an older couple here this morning uh, in the first service. They, they were probably in their 70s or 80s. I didn't recognize them. I went up and introduced myself. And I said, how, how long have you been coming to our church? And they said, this is our first Sunday. I said, well, how did you find out about it? And they said, um, the, the lady, she said, I was driving down the road and, and my tire exploded. I had this huge blowout. I had to pull over in an emergency. And I just sat there for a minute. A few people kind of waved and even slowed down, checked on me a little bit. But there was a man that pulled over and he stayed with me for the next three hours as we got the tire changed. And, and he just helped so much and he made sure I was safe. And he introduced himself and he asked me where I went to church. And... Um, he invited me to your church and I'm here today because of the man that, that helped me. That is the work of the church. So I don't know who you're gonna encounter this week, but there are people in need all around you. People are crumbling under the emotional weight of 2020. And we have the hope that there is a, a king who welcomes outsiders into his kingdom if they will respond in worship to surrender our lives to him.